You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Hey, grab a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and then if you want to uh, put a place marker there, also 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as well. We're in this series, the Corinthians, and uh, this is sort of Paul's last section here in these first four chapters of establishing who he is, uh, what he did, who Christ has called him to be, and uh, also a bit of a reminder to the people at the Church of Corinth that they have gotten off track. They have stopped believing what is truth, what is good, and they've allowed the influence of their city, they've allowed the... um, intellectual thoughts of the city and the Greek thinkers of their time to come in and begin to influence the church. And so this is uh, Paul's letter to them to say, stop it, (laughs) wake up and uh, get back to what is truth and what is good. Um, Before we jump in there, the the sermon title this morning is The Suffering Servant. The Suffering Servant, Galatians 2.20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Galatians 2.20. When we come to Christ, the call to follow Christ is a call to die. Now that's weird, right? It's a tough saying. It's a call to die. It's a call to die to self. It's a call to die to popular culture. It's a call to die to whatever is the norm of the day and age you live in. And it's a call to die to what you believe will bring success or prosperity. It's a call to leave it behind. In that, we are called into the crucifixion of Christ. We are called into that part of it. And so with this morning's message being the suffering servant, this is where Paul is really going to explain why his life, and I'm a little hot right now with the mic, uh, why his life is so, uh, has so much persecution in it, because this is the problem the Corinthians are having. They're saying, look, we've come to follow your Jesus, We've got our churches, and we're studying, and Apollos is teaching us about him, and Peter's teaching us about him. And here's the thing, Paul. None of us are suffering like you're suffering. None of us are experiencing the kind of persecution and beatings and just trials that you're going through. So, Paul, we're just sort of wondering if you really even love the Lord or if the Lord loves you. We're actually kind of questioning whether or not this whole idea of suffering is part of it because we have found a way to do church and to follow Jesus Christ without all the suffering. Why haven't you, Paul? Isn't that fascinating? Does anyone else find that fascinating? This is what they were saying. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians now has to address this with them. He has to address the fact that they look at him as possibly being in some sort of a sin and they pass judgment on him. And so he's going to address that judgment that they're passing on him. And then they're going, he's going to basically say, listen, if you want to live in the resurrection, if you want to live in the, the uh, life of Jesus Christ, you also have to live in his death. You also have to embrace his crucifixion for yourself. And so for us today, this is a very difficult message as 
I even believe it was for those people in Corinth because I see so many similarities between the people of Corinth and us here in the, this great land of America. The call to follow Jesus was a call to die. Before we jump into Corinthians, I want to read for you Luke 14, 25 through 33. And I just, as I read it, and I believe we'll have it up here as well, I want you to, um, I want you to take a minute and think about the words because where we go from here for the rest of this morning is really founded on this principle here. This is the cement, the foundation of which we'll build everything else we're talking about. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and child, brother and sister, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you. Saying this, person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king went out to war and didn't uh, first sit down and consider whether his 10,000 men could oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Three different times there we're told what we have to do or else we cannot be the disciples of Jesus Christ. Three times. If you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. Now that's tough because as I looked over, and this was a fun little task. I didn't mention this uh, at the 945 service. But I looked over a bunch of churches across the country, big churches. And I looked over their sermon series from the past few months to the next few months. And I just looked at the titles of what they were. And you know what most of them were? Most of them were about having a wonderful life in Christ. I'm not kidding. Most of them were about what it is to come to Christ and the greatness that will come from it. In fact, there's actually a church here in the East Valley that has a series just starting this week called Smooth. And it's got a picture of an old caddy, and it's about the smooth ride of coming to Christ and the walk of Christianity. And I struggle with this, and it causes me to scratch my head a little bit, because as I read the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation, it doesn't ever, 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 just give me a second, ever, ever talk about a smooth ride. There's actually never a time when it says things will go well for you if you do this. But it does repeat from Genesis to the end of Revelation, expect great suffering, trials, persecution, just as our Lord did. Right? So how is it then that we here in America and our biggest churches offer a gospel that teaches a smooth ride? How? What happened? Well, I want to talk about that because it's funny. It seems at times that what we're doing here is completely... Uh, against scripture, and sometimes it is when our churches do this, but I want you to see that part of it is part of what I call the persecution of influence, of affluence, the persecution of wealth. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 here as we jump into uh, Paul. I can tell my version's different than yours, so I'm going to read from the screen up here. 
This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Not, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent because it is the Lord who judges me. Now, just take a minute there with that verse. Anybody ever seen that verse somewhere? It's usually pretty sarcastically being put out there. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. In fact, we actually, I've seen it on tattoos, right? Gangsters put it on themselves like, hey, only God can judge me for this amazingly uh, sacrificial life I'm living. And we look at that verse and it gets completely taken out of context of what Paul is saying here, which is this, what he's saying is, you are placing judgment on me because you do not understand why it is I suffer, right? And so he says, God will judge my motives. God will judge. God sees the heart. We love to take that verse, and when a Christian brother or sister comes to us and says, hey, I think, I think what you're doing isn't healthy for you. I think what you're doing isn't right, and we say, only God can judge me. <laughs> That's not exactly how it's meant to be taken. Okay. Um, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Remember, that's been a problem for the first three chapters. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all that you want. And that's an important line. That's us, right? Prepackaged meat, prepackaged produce, prepackaged cereal, prepackaged Twinkies. We have all that we need. This is them in Corinth. They have everything they need. Already have all that you want. Already you have become rich, Paul says. You have begun to reign and that without us. You have already begun to reign. You already are rulers over this earth. You're rulers over your territories. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. You know what he's saying there? How I wish you would have embraced the sufferings of Christ so that we can have a true reign, a true glory with you. But you still see the reign of this world as being more important than the reign of Christ in your life. That's what he's saying. You're still addicted. You're still uh, stuck to the wisdom of the world rather than the wisdom of Christ. Verse 9. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like those who condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. And now here's what's really great with this verse, is understanding the context of what he's talking about. When Rome would go and conquer another people, right, or another country, they would bring back with them slaves, or, or uh, they would bring back with them prisoners, and 
The only way the people of Rome knew that its soldiers won is when the procession came back into the city, right? They didn't have email or CNN or Fox to tell them that they won. They didn't have any live video feed to tell them that they were winning. They just had to sit there and wonder, is my husband going to come back? Is my brother going to come back? My son going to come back? Did we win the war? And how they knew they won is the procession would come through the middle of the city. It would be great. The generals would be up front, then the soldiers. And at the very end, this is why he says, we are displayed at the end of the procession would be the prisoners. They would keep some of the people from wherever they were conquering, whoever they were fighting, and they would drag them through the streets for shame and humiliation. And then often at the end of the procession, after it had come through, they would kill them in front of everybody to show their dominance. Pretty brutal, right? This is what Paul's referring to here. He says, we are, as God has put us, on display at the end of the procession. Like those who have been condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Right up to this moment, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel, and therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Paul says, look, I don't suffer and I'm not going through this persecution just because I like it. I'm not doing this because I think it will get me a better place in heaven. I'm doing this because Christ called me to join him in his suffering that I may then experience his resurrection. And if you forget to join him in the power of his suffering then you cannot know the power of his resurrection in your life. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, you're still, you're powerful, you're strong, you're wise in your own eyes, but I encourage you, join me in my homelessness, join me in my rags, join me in my suffering, imitate me as I go forward in this, is what he's saying. Verse 17, for this reason I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul says, this isn't just for you because you're a wealthy church. This isn't just for you because you're an intelligent, smart people. This isn't just for you because you're uh, plotted on a very lush, uh, enviable part of the world. I tell this to every church. Because this is Christ's truth. I don't mince words for anybody. I don't water it down for anybody. You get the same thing that they get over in Thessalonica, that they get in Ephesus. Everyone gets the same. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon. If the Lord is willing, then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but I'm going to find out what power they have. Now that's fun, because in this last section here, Paul actually gets a little bit sarcastic. He uses uh, a type of debate, a type of reasoning that they would have used in their times, that the Greek thinkers would have used, and he's actually going to use sarcasm 
to help bring them around to the light of what he's saying. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. He's saying, you think you have power apart from Christ and your affluence and your wealth and your, your Greek reasoning? Fine. I will bring the power of the Holy Spirit. You bring the power of your reasoning. And then he closes with this, verse 21. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with the rod of discipline or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Now that last section is, is the final bit of sarcasm that's just really fantastic because he says, do, you, do I need to come in and spank or come in and give you a hug? Which one do you want? You want the spanking or the hug? When I ask my children that, they always choose hug, right? None of them say, I could use a spanking. I mean, honestly, I've been pretty bad. I shoved my sister twice and then made fun of her. Go ahead, it's right here, right? Paul says, what, what is it gonna be? You want the rod or do you want love and gentleness? You have a choice. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter four. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that this life may be revealed in our mortal bodies so that death, listen, so then death is at work in us but life is also at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. He's quoting Psalm 116.10, King David. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore we speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All of this is for your benefit. All of this so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Therefore, outwardly, we are wasting away. <laughs> Therefore, outwardly, we are wasting away. We are getting old and saggy and wrinkly and arthritic and tired. And I'm just explaining myself. Right? We're wasting away on the outside. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And then I want to give you two sentences here from chapter 12, verse 7. Paul's still writing to the Corinthians here. He says, listen, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, right? Paul says, I was given all of this revelation. I was given all of this authority. I was given the power to heal people. I was given knowledge that most humans don't have, and God just bestowed it upon me even though I was his enemy. Because of this, to keep me from becoming conceited, there was given me a thorn in my flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, 
in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, it is then that I am strong. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father, Lord, your spirit needs to move, your spirit needs to speak, your spirit needs to open up hearts. As the word is presented here this morning, I pray that would happen. I pray that we would critically examine ourselves, that we would take time to think about these things and that there would be surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 16, Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. So I alluded to this, right? Our bodies are wasting down, our physical appearance, our physical attractiveness. Tell me in this country what we don't fight harder for than our beauty and our youth. Am I right? Anybody seen Wayne Newton recently? That man is fighting tooth and nail for his youth and his beauty. I mean, I think he's permanently just stuck like this, and he looks like those wax models of himself in Madame Tussauds, and it's sad because this guy is an incredible talent, you know, was blessed with good looks and fame and charisma and all this stuff, and he's gotten older now, and he doesn't want to let it go because it's who he is and it's his identity, and so he has spent tens of thousands on plastic surgery that he thinks when he looks at himself, he still sees 31-year-old Wayne, right? And we all see 91-year-old Wayne with a lot of plastic. But that's our culture. That, 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 that's just, I don't mean to pick on him, that's just a, um, a small microcosm of our culture, which is to avoid pain, avoid old age, and avoid any type of suffering whatsoever. I've, told, I've said this before, but that's why the remote was invented, right? Because it's suffering to have to get up and manually change the TV, especially now that there's so many stations. We avoid suffering at all costs. We avoid old age. We avoid pain at all costs. It is the mantra of our, of our country. And here's what's wild about this. Tim Keller, 14 years ago, was speaking on this subject, and he said, every society, even our society 50 years ago, has always been more reconciled to the idea that we are breaking down, getting old, and we have an expiration date. He said every society throughout history has been reconciled. They get it. I understand. I'm going to get old, and I'm going to die. Life won't go on forever. I won't be young forever. I won't be at the top of my game forever, except for the last 50 years in America. We have somehow are shocked by the idea that we get old and we die. We are shocked that we get old and we get sick. And so we have fought tooth and nail to prevent it. We have dedicated billions of dollars towards science to not just to help get rid of sickness, but to keep us beautiful younger or longer. And we fight for that because, listen to this, all of these people who seem so confident, all of these people who seem like they have it together, all they have is their fleeting beauty their time on this earth, and that's it. Which is why they fight so hard to keep it. Which is why they'll spend everything they have and endure tons of surgical pain if it means being able to keep the only thing they think makes life worth living. Do you get that? It's actually really sad. It's not just our appearances which fade though. Our relationships fade, friendships fade, right? People move, new jobs happen. Life changes happen, and the people that you were once the closest to, you might not be anymore. Skills change, right? 
I love major league sports, basketball, football, baseball. All three of those, if you're in your mid-30s, you're considered old. You're old and you're done. You've given your time. You're too slow now. You can't keep up with the guys in their 20s and their teens. And you're considered old. 30, mid-30s. I mean, I'm there. And I look at that and say, had I gone and played professional basketball like I dreamt of, um, I'm just, it was a very far-reaching dream, uh, I would be done. My career would be over with right about this time. Maybe I'd have a few more years. And that's it. But yet so much is put into this that we try to stay in demand. We want to stay at the top of our profession. In the beginning, we begin to see it recede. Fear comes into the heart of men and women. That the thing that we were hanging on to, the thing that made us something, will no longer be there. And so here's what's really wild, though. That just, like I said, in the last 50 years, our culture has begun to um, fight against the age, fight against, who's the artist who would say the dying of the light? Um, And yet we, as Christians, are actually called to embrace it. Embrace the suffering. Embrace the persecution. Know that it's in the suffering and the persecution that you will also get a chance to embrace the life of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And in your weakness, in, in the thing that makes you weak, and the thing you're most ashamed of and the thing you're most embarrassed about is where God's strength will be most manifested. Secondly, there's a pattern to this suffering. Both sections of Scripture uh, here, First and Second Corinthians, are written to a church where Paul's apostolic authority is under question. I mentioned that, right? They don't trust him because they see all this stuff happening to him. So Paul addresses them in Second Corinthians 11. And I want you to hear this. This is fantastic. He says... I understand that you think that I'm not a good man because of all that's happening to me, but allow me to tell you what has happened to me. He gives them a bit of a laundry list. I've been imprisoned, flogged. Five times I have received 39 lashes. Three times beaten, once with rods. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I've been constantly in danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own countrymen, and from Gentiles. I have known hunger and thirst. I have been cold and naked who is weak, am I not weaker than they? Paul's like, what do you got? You, you want to talk about pain? You want to talk about persecution? Allow me to show you what I have been through. Allow me to talk about it. You see, the Corinthians looked at that as a weakness, looked at that as a meaning that he was not in God's sight because he was going through those things. And it's actually a common human response when a man of God is undergoing those kind of trials because isn't Job, didn't Job go through the same thing with his friends? They said all the same things to Job. Job, they said, what is wrong? What have you done? Perhaps you need to repent for something you have done and all of this wouldn't have happened to you. Job, surely God cannot be happy with you at this point of your life, so you you need to change whatever it is you're doing so God can return to what? Blessing you. And friends, this is the message, as my Google search showed me, of the American church. I want the blessings of God. I want the best life I possibly can have. I want to win at everything I do. I want to know how to be a Christian in a culture and a community that doesn't like our values, that thinks we're backwards, that thinks we look out of a book that is no longer for our time. And I still want to be liked. I still want to be on top. I still want to be valued. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to struggle. Do you see that? 
This is, this is American church. And our pastors are teaching people ways to do that without ever addressing this part. This part that Paul addresses more than 30 times in just his letters alone, that there is going to be intense struggle and persecution if you choose to follow Christ. If you choose to follow Christ, get used to it. Get used to it. Paul says his sufferings are not only not a denial of the gospel, in fact, they are confirmation of the gospel at work in his life. 10, 11, and 12 of of, uh, 2 Corinthians 4 says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. We always carry that around. All we ever want to focus on is the resurrected Lord, right? The Lord that that gives power and abilities and miracles and superhero traits to people. And we don't ever want to remember that Paul said, no, I carry around the death of the Lord as well. I carry around his crucifixion, his beating, his torment, being chased out of sittings, being spat on, being ridiculed, made fun of. I also carry that with me. So that his life may be revealed. That's how the gospel works. Death leading to resurrection. Weakness leads to the triumphant exaltation. And that's how Jesus works in my life. There's the analogy of the acorn. And the acorn is small, but in order for it to fill a continent with, with a forest, it must go under the ground, it must die, so that it can then give life, right? And then drop more acorns, give more life, and it can continue to spread if it were allowed to. That's how God expected his body to be. This was the mystery Paul talked about in the first few chapters of 1 Corinthians. It was the mystery that was hidden. How is God going to cross cultural boundaries, social boundaries, and ethnic boundaries to get his message, the Jewish, the Jewish message, Judaism, Yahweh, how is he going to spread that all across the world? And God said, I will invite them to be part of my body. And then when they're part of my body, they must choose to die so that they can truly live and then give life to others. But they must embrace my death in order to be able to give life. You see that? It's the same exact principle there. It's the same principle there that it is with the acorn. But here's the thing, you and I are infinitely more loved and treasured by God than an acorn. You have the ability for beauty and compassion. You have the ability for growth and teaching and learning. Because you're made in his image. He made you in his image so that you could express who he is to the people you come in contact with. It's a beautiful understanding and an idea. But there's something interesting here. And the meaning of this, the devastation comes from redemption. Paul gives a personal example. He says, there is a thorn in my flesh And I have asked God over and over and over again to remove it, and God has said no. God has said no, I won't remove it. Does that remind you of anyone else in Scripture? We're told that Jesus Christ, with his disciples, went to the garden in Gethsemane, and he went before the Father, and he said, let this pass from me. But he wasn't just asking for a thorn in his flesh to pass. He was asking for what ultimately would become a spear in his side and nails in his hands. And he said, but not my will, but yours be done. Because it was in both of them, Paul and Jesus' weakness, that the Father's power was made most evident. 
You see that? And he wants to do the same thing with you. He wants to do the same thing with you. This week I sent out an email and I asked the question, I said, must we suffer? Must, did Christ have to suffer to save the world? Or was it just the method he chose? Did he have to? You ever think about that? Couldn't he have done it another way? Still died on a cross maybe, or maybe just a firing line? Did he have to suffer so much? And then do I then have to suffer so much? Isn't, was there another way? And the, and the question really lies in, in God's answer to Paul, which is no. There was no other way because my power always comes to perfection and weakness. My life-giving power can only explode into the world and into your friends and into your neighbor's life through Jesus Christ through your weakness. So the very thing that you keep asking God to take away from you, the very thing we keep asking God to smooth out the road for us for, God's saying, don't ask for a smoother road, ask for a four-by-four vehicle. Ask for the ability to handle the road that has been given to you. Ask for the ability to navigate things, and I will teach you, and I will show you, and my spirit will comfort you and uplift you and and help you through those times, but I will not smooth the road out for you because it is the weakness of the road that you travel that exposes my power. And here in America, we beg God as American Christians all the time to take away the one thing that he is using to express his power through us. Let that sink in. (laughs) And now I'll invite the band up as we close here. Thank you so much, guys. In verse 16 and 17, he says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I want to close with a question for you to think about. What is heaven? Paul says, talks about the seen and the unseen. I suffer the things that are seen for the hope of the things that are unseen. What is heaven? You know, one of the ways that heaven is sort of portrayed in our church and is talked about in order to get people to say the prayer so then we can have them fill out a card as a church, and say, there, they gave their life to the Lord. Heaven is compensation for you giving up all the things of the world. It's compensation, right? Look, I'm going to ask you to give up drugs, sex, and rock and roll. You can't party or have beer or have any fun, but you'll get heaven. What's in heaven? Uh, Pearly gates, gold streets, mansions, angels, four-headed beasts, seven-headed beasts, beasts of all type, harps, clouds, is that what heaven is? Is that what it is? Is it compensation for me giving up all the things of this earth? For me living like Paul down in the dumps and, and poor and in rags and homeless and beaten and naked? Is that what heaven is? It's my compensation? Paul says no. It has nothing to do with it. He said, first of all, if you don't love the people you're doing it for, then don't do it. Don't do it. He's going to tell us that later in Corinthians. If you have all the knowledge in the world, if you have the answer, if you're serving everybody in your neighborhood but you don't actually love them, stop. Don't do it. But here's what heaven is. 
that unseen thing that you have the hope for is getting to see the world the way God intended it, is getting to see the world restored, is getting to see animals and the trees and the ground and the sea and humans interacting with all of it the way God intended it. A restored heaven and a restored earth. That's heaven. Imagine a place where all the suffering you endure for Christ now isn't compensation, but is the picture of what you have hoped for your whole life. When we talk about peace, when we talk about forgiveness, and when we talk about people loving one another instead of hurting one another, that's what heaven is. That's what a new earth and the new heavens look like. And so I just encourage you as we go about this and we pray here to say, Lord, is your persecution something I run from? Is the pain of, and suffering that I might receive if I stand up for the truth of the gospel, is that something that I'm really, I'm really ready to do? Have I, have I counted the cost? Because Jesus didn't say you'll be a second-rate disciple. He didn't say you'll just stay as a low-ranking disciple, right? You won't ever make officer, general. He said, you can't be my disciple unless you've given up these things. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now that uh, I, we, I need your spirit to move. We need your spirit to move. Move on the hearts of those in this room. Move on the hearts of those who have called you Father, but this call today has challenged them. And, and you, Lord, have touched our hearts and you've reminded us of what is right and what is good and you've reminded us of what is real versus what is fake and so Lord God I just pray for movement today don't let people stay in their seats move, move, move you are so good Lord, we give this time to you in Jesus name Amen